0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Uh, please grab a Bible or open the Bible on your phone or grab the Bible under your seat and open it up to James chapter 1. James is towards the very end of your Bible, right after the book of Hebrews and right before the letters of Peter and John. So if you hit Peter, you've gone too far. we be in James chapter 1. In order to become a United States Marine, recruits must complete a 13-week boot camp that is designed to strip away their individualism and all those parts of you that are not fit for life in a military unit. It's designed to train you in all the skills, knowledge, tactics, the virtues needed to engage with and destroy the enemies of the United States in land and on sea. Trial after trial is designed to turn you into the kind of warrior deserving the title of Marine. The very end of boot camp culminates in this final 54-hour training event called the Crucible. And a crucible is like a ceramic pot all right, that you put some sort of like metal in, usually like a, a rock that you think has some gold in it, put the rock in the crucible, you put the crucible in the furnace, and you heat it up really, 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 really hot. So for gold, that's like 1,947 degrees Fahrenheit. It's unimaginably hot. And it burns away all the impurities, right? It burns away so that when you take that out of the furnace, what you're left with is just pure gold or silver or iron, whatever you're trying to, trying to get, And that's what this event, this crucible event at the end of Marine Boot Camp is designed to do. It's the last process in refining a weak, flabby, scared, untested American boy into a hardened killer. Recruits are broken up into teams, and they're put through different physical and mental trials to test everything that they've learned over the past 13 weeks. They're allowed very little food or sleep in order to simulate the worst of a combat type of scenario that you would encounter. And the very last event is this nine-mile ruck march to the parade fields there on Paris Island where Marines are awarded the Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia that, that designates that they have completed their training and they now have the right to the title United States Marine. And Josh noted last week that one of the three myths that James is trying to bust is the myth that all trials are bad. So in our culture, we kind of see trials, whether they're big or small, as messing with our comfort, or threatening our safety, or disrupting our carefully laid plans. And so we see trials and we say, those are bad. I don't want those. But no one would look at the crucible events that the Marines go through and say, that's bad. They shouldn't really put those poor Marines through the crucible. They'd really be better off spending 13 weeks on Paris Island's golf course instead of training to be Marines. No, like we we wouldn't do that. That's pretty ridiculous. We want these young men and women to go through really extreme training and trials because they're going to be America's elite expeditionary fighting force. We want to prove them and test them so that when they come up against the enemy, we know that they're going to prevail. They know that they're going to prevail. Imagine getting off the bus at Paris Island and getting handed a uniform and a weapon And told yep and now you're going to go face the enemy like without any training that would not be good so this this very example here shows that this myth is false and james is going to help show even more so that it's false but the reason i would hold that we know that this training this trial this really really difficult probably really painful experience the crucible event in marine corps training is good the reason we can look at it the reason why a recruit going through it can look at it and say, this is good. This is good for me. It's, it sucks right now. But to not despair is because they have hope. They know what's on the other side. They know that that eagle, globe, and anchor awaits them. They know that that tidal marine awaits them. And so I'll, I'll put to you today, and James is going to put to us, that when we know what our trials are for, when we you know the purpose behind them, then they don't become so bad anymore. We can actually enter them with joy. And so, turn with me now to James chapter one. I'm going to read our whole passage here, and you'll start to see some of this stuff pop pop out. And we'll go into it a little bit deeper and explain it more and more. So, James chapter one, verses two to four here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James begins his letter with a command. Count it all joy. That's a command. There's no greeting like you find in almost every other New Testament letter. He just jumps straight into this command to consider a joy whenever you encounter all kinds of different trials. Excuse me. First, note that he speaks of various kinds of trials. He has in mind the big stuff and the small stuff. The simple reality of life, especially the Christian life, is that trials will come. Jesus said, In this life, you will have trouble. Jesus said, you're going to build your house on the rock and the storm waves are going to come. We just read about that in the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle Paul, when he would, went on a church planning mission and on his way back, he was strengthening the churches. We're told in Acts 14.22 that the, the essence of his message to strengthen the churches was through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's his approach to strengthening churches. Was, Watch out, trials are coming. Get ready. And so... I'm sorry if someone lied to you and told you that the Christian life would get easier uh, when you became a Christian. That's just simply not true. In fact, in many respects, things only get harder. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Relatively minor trials might include something like an argument with a family member, moving to a new city, a few days of illness or an injury that keeps you from playing a season of sports, a boss who treats you harshly, okay? Okay. Uh, Maybe a season of intense exercise or dieting that you're using to try to, to hit some health goals. That would be a trial. Car trouble that disrupts your plans or hits your bank account particularly hard. Or it could be watching a cherished friend move away to a new city to pursue some college or career goals. And it would be really easy to just keep the scope of this command, consider it pure joy when you meet trials, just focused on the relatively small things. But James is exhorting us to also consider devastating and severe trials. I don't think it's out of bounds at all to think he would include losing a child, getting laid off or fired from a job you loved, being mistreated or even abandoned by your family members for choosing to follow Christ, state-sponsored persecution, walking through cancer in months or even years of difficult treatment. An economic downturn that wipes out your retirement account right as you needed it. Struggling with infertility for a time or forever. These are all on the table. James has all these trials on mind. And I understand that at face value, it's almost laughable to think about joy in the midst of, of those deep, deep trials. In fact, my first reaction is, is to scoff as well. Right? It'd be really easy to just leave those off the table this morning and just give you a little prep talk about persevering through relatively minor things where you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But James won't allow us to rule them out. And I'm not going to speak to you from my own authority today. In fact, I feel like I've had very few significant trials in my life, though they're going to come, no doubt. This is James speaking to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I just want us, you and me, to understand how on earth God can say, consider it joy when you experience trials of all kinds. How can God say to us through James, brother, sister, count it joy when you you go through these things that we've mentioned? Some qualifications to start. The charge from James is to count or consider. This is an intellectual activity. He doesn't say, pretend to be happy, to be chipper, joyful, happy when you experience trials, whether they're small or big. In the army, we used to say, false motivation is better than no motivation. That's not what James is saying, right? This is not change the way you're feeling. You need to go through the sorrow or the devastation or the frustration of these trials. That's okay. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? The command from James is not a call to force yourself to feel a certain way, but it's a call to consider your circumstances from a different perspective, an eternal perspective. And second, by joy... Again, James does not mean this chipper, happy-go-lucky kind of attitude, nor does he mean some kind of naive, blissful happiness, like your head in the sand, you're just pretending like everything's okay. The word all in verse 2 is not a pronoun, like consider all these things joy. It's an adjective modifying joy, so consider it all joy. This all is kind of like an intensifier. It means like a deep, whole, robust joy experience even in the midst of these trials. Despite the emotional sucker punch you will feel when trials come your way, we have to be able to see past the present circumstances, past the tragedy or the hopelessness or the betrayal, and actually consider these things for what they really are, with a deeper sense of joy. Again, but how? How, how is that possible? Why can James, without any preface or nuance or clarification... Start this letter with such an outrageous command to consider it joy when you experience trials of all kinds. That's the answer he gives in the next two verses and those are the waters we need to wade deep into the rest of this morning. James says the reason you can look at your trials from the greatest to the worst is because they do something for you. Look at verse three with me. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word steadfastness is kind of an awkward word we never really use. A better word would be endurance. That's actually the, uh, the way the NASB and the CSB translations go. Endurance is the idea there. And w- it's the idea that when your faith is tested by trials, the result is endurance. Testing produces endurance. Like a muscle being exercised. Though it might go through some pain, though you might exhaust it, it comes to the end of its, its rope, you reach muscle failure after it rests, after it heals, the muscle is stronger. And the same is true of faith. That's, that's James's claim. But there's actually another metaphor hidden in the verbiage here, and it's the word testing. Look at verse 3 again. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He has in mind trials here. This word testing is only used one other time in the Greek New Testament, and that's in 1 Peter And then if you consider the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, that's called the Septuagint, it's used two other times, so a total of four times. If you forget about James for a minute, all three of the other times, it has actually like a very specific meaning. I'm going to read them to you, and without explanation, it'll pop out. You'll see what he means by testing. It's kind of like a very nuanced, specific flavor of that word, okay? So here's the first one. You don't need to turn to these, just listen carefully. 1 Peter 6-7. through In this, he's talking about your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Same Greek phrase. So that the tested, that's the word, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, here's the next one. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined. That's the testing word there. In a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested, that's the word, by his praise. You see it, don't you? The Kind of the unique flavor that this word testing has for James. The idea is a crucible of a testing event or really actually refining something. That's the kind of testing James has in mind. Trials are like a furnace. Of affliction. And God puts his people in a crucible and then into the furnace of affliction in order to burn away their impurities and make their faith pure and stronger. And the result of that, James claims in verse 3, is endurance. When you take that Christian out of the trial, when you take them out of the furnace, what you've got is a stronger Christian with more endurance for the next one. And more than that, look at verse 4 now. James says, let steadfastness, let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it doesn't just stop there. Once you've come through the furnace and received that endurance, you've been refined, then you proceed on to become more and more perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what James means by that this is the idea of growing maturity. It's like taking that 18 year old boy straight off the bus at Paris Island. He goes through 13 weeks of boot camp, and then when his parents go to graduation, it's not the same boy anymore, right? He's got a sharp haircut. He can shoot, move, and communicate. He's stronger. He's leaner. He can stand at attention for four hours during an inspection. He can march right face, about face, with a sharp precision. He's really been turned into a, a fully-orbed, mature warrior we call a marine. He's not perfect, not sinless or anything like that, just more mature. He has all those qualities he needs to be a Marine. He's ready to face and overcome the enemies of the United States in close combat. He's mature. And that's the idea of perfection or or completeness here that James is using as well. Not that through trials we become sinless or morally perfect. It's the idea that we grow into the maturity of a believer that Christ has called us to. So this would be like the full slate of virtues that Christ uh, desires us to exhibit in our life, which is a habit or a, of a particular quality. Not just a one-time thing like, I loved someone once, but you are a loving person. Or not just, I was courageous once, but you are a courageous person. That's the idea of virtue. Or it's the idea of bearing all the fruits of the Spirit in due time. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so... As you mature, you kind of grow as a tree to start bearing fruit. How does that work? How, does, how do the mechanics of that work? So think about the, the fruit of the spirit of love, for instance. You go through a trial where you're forced to work in a situation with someone that's very hard, to, very hard to love. They don't reciprocate your love at all. You try to be kind and compassionate to them. You try to show interest in them and their life. And all they do is talk about themselves. They never show any interest in you or care for you. You do things to serve them and care for them, and they never reciprocate it back. That's a trial. That's one of the things James has in mind. And as you go through this trial, what happens is you gain endurance if you pass the trial. You gain endurance to then encounter more people in the future who aren't that lovely, that are hard to love, and you now possess that endurance has its effect that you become more complete in the virtue of love. And so now you're more capable of love in the future. Or take the fruit of the Spirit, patience, for instance. If you have children, this fruit of the Spirit is constantly tested. Imagine dealing with a child who constantly tries your patience. They constantly buck under your authority. They constantly need to be reminded 20 different times before they do anything, right? That's a trial, something James has in mind. And if you endure through that, the way to endure through that is by faith. Say, God, this is really hard to do right now. I don't seem to have any effect on this child's life right now. They're, they're constantly ignoring me. I trust that your spirit can empower me to move through this trial with patience that I not blow up on this child. And so by faith, you persevere, gain endurance, and now you possess the fruit of the spirit, patience, in a more whole, fuller way so that the next trial you encounter, you have, you have this reserve of patience to draw on that you didn't have before. That's the idea of how this works. And this might be easy to accept if we're experiencing trials like a, a kid that's, that's always a rascal, right? Or a, a crying baby in the middle of the night. Or a flat tire a few miles from home that disrupts our, our weekend plans. Or a difficult coworker. But it's almost impossible to accept this of those severe trials I mentioned, like the loss of a child, or the cancer diagnosis, or infertility. Something like that. It's really hard to accept how could that be a good thing for me that's going to cause me to grow in my faith and endure. James actually directs us to look at the life of someone in the Bible who probably suffered more than any of us ever will. James is going to use this technique all throughout his letter like a hyperlinking. If you've ever been to a Wikipedia page, you've seen all the little blue words you can click on and they take you to another page. That's a very Hebrew way of writing and James, who's a Jew, is going to do that all throughout his book and with this word steadfastness, or endurance, he uses it, just drop down a couple verses to verse 12 in chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast or who endures under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So that'll come up or the idea of wisdom will come up or the idea of the tongue will come up as you see through this sermon series. But if you turn just one page to the right to James chapter 5, James chapter 5, this idea of endurance comes up again. Chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So, two things he points us to in that verse an example, Job. You've heard of his endurance, right? And he points us to the purposes of the Lord. So, we're going to look at Job now. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to give you, like, the whole book of Job in 60 seconds kind of thing, all right? But this is what James says. Like, you want to know more about how this works? And again, this, Job's going to go through some really severe trials. Go look at Job and consider his situation. So who is Job? Job was a righteous man. He was blameless, it says, amongst all of his neighbors. And he was also really wealthy. He owned thousands of animals and several herds and flocks, things like that. He had a beautiful family of, I think it's seven sons and three daughters. He was loved by God. And one day, uh, Satan is kind of like approaching God in the throne room of heaven. And God says, hey, Satan, look at my servant Job. He is blameless and upright. He loves righteousness and turns away from evil. And Satan responds basically, that's just because you give him good stuff. That's just because you bless his life. If you were to take all that away from him, he would curse you to your face. And God says, like, basically, you want to bet? Like, go ahead, take those things from Job and see what happens. He gives, he gives Satan permission to attack everything except Job's life. He says, you can't, you can't harm Job, specifically. And so in a single day, Job loses all of his flocks and his servants are slaughtered by marauders, raiders. And all of his children are dining in a house and the roof collapses on and kills all of them in a single day. And he's just like crushed, obviously, right? Again, he's not just like, oh, that's okay. Still got God. No, he's crushed. Still, this is his response Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This infuriates Satan. God charges him, consider my servant Job again. He, has still, he still holds on to his integrity. He still has not charged me with any blame. And Satan says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will surrender for his life. Just reach out and touch his bone, his skin, and he will curse you to his face. And so God says, okay, do it. You can, you can attack Job now specifically, but you can't, you can't kill him. This is one requirement. And so, Satan afflicts Job with these loathsome sores all over his body. These are terrible. They go from the palm of the bottom of his seat to the crown of his head, and he sits down in a pile of ash with a piece of broken pottery to scrape the pus and the worms out of them. This is disgusting. It's like lower than any of us have ever been, probably. And Job's wife comes up to him and says, Do you still hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die, man! Like, it's over! curse God. And Job says, like, no. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? He endures. That's the kind of, this is the kind of life that James says we need to consider. As the book goes on, three of Job's friends show up and in their heads, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That's it. It's a really black and white world. And so they try to convince Job for like 20 chapters straight that he surely has done something wrong to deserve what's happened to him. But time and time again, Job defends himself and proves, no, I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. This is, not, this is not justice being done to me. I'm just suffering. I don't know why. And he gets pretty frustrated and he demands to see God. He's like, I want to present my case to God to find out why on earth are you doing this to me? And he gets a little more than he bargained for. God shows up like a terrifying whirlwind, like a a giant thundering storm cloud. And God asks Job dozens of rhetorical questions to see if Job has the same kind of like knowledge about how the world works as God. He says things like this. This is just a sample. This goes on for about four chapters straight. This is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have an understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? These are constellations, like thousands of light years away from our planet. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you give the horse his might? Can you clothe his mane, his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? God never actually directly answers Job and tells him why he's endured the things that he has endured. The point of all these rhetorical questions is to say, Job, you don't know anything. You, you can't even begin to comprehend the millions of things I'm doing in any one moment of human history. I couldn't begin to explain my ways to you. You couldn't comprehend what I'm, what I'm doing in your suffering. At any given moment, God is doing a million different things. He is governing the setting of the sun, the water cycle, the birth and death of every single animal, the rise and fall of kingdoms. Every atom in the universe is under God's direct control every second of every day. Nothing surprises him, nothing defies him. And so Job ends by just putting his hand over his mouth and saying, I know that you can do all things. And that your purposes cannot be thwarted. This is the story James points us to to understand this idea of endurance through trials. Both an example of endurance, despite the worst calamities you could imagine, Job's response is, "Blessed be the name of the Lord." And as an example of what is God doing in the midst of suffering, that's a lot harder to say from Job. Job. God doesn't come out and tell Job, but if if I think it's there, so think back to how the story began. Why did Job undergo this suffering to begin with? You, the reader, know. You've heard the story. You you hear this background information that Job wasn't privy to. Satan was sure Job only loved or treasured God because of what God did for Job, because of what God could give him, because of the worldly blessings like family, his house, his flocks, his position. But God knew better. And so when everything was stripped from Job and his kids were killed, and he was afflicted with terrible sores all over his body and his friends accused him of hidden wickedness, Job's faithfulness in the midst of that trial testified to everyone around him how good and glorious and precious God was to him. To his wife, to his friends, to the angels and Satan in the throne room of heaven, and to us, 3,000 years later, who are maybe just for the first time hearing about the story of Job. That's the example James points us to. Like look at that guy. What was more precious to him than all those things? Job's answer, "blessed be the name of the Lord." That's God's purpose in our suffering. When God afflicts us with trials, when God puts us in the furnace of affliction, he's actually working for our eternal good, though it be painful in the midst of it. The apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1:8-9, you don't need to turn here. Just listen. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened, beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. In fact, we were sure that we had received the sentence of death. All of that was so, we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why did God allow Paul to suffer so far beyond his strength that he despaired of life? And had basically just given up for dead so that he would cast himself on God and rely on God's strength because God can raise the dead. That's a purpose clause right there. That's telling us what God is doing in his suffering. And that's what faith is, relying on God who raises the dead. That's how we build endurance, testing God over and over and over and over again. With this terrible situation, whatever it might be, or this trial, big or small, can you redeem this? Can you work this for good? Can you raise this from the dead? That's the kind of eternal perspective James wants you and me to take into our trials, big or small. Remember, he's not asking us to feel happy or joyful about them. He doesn't even tell us to seek out trials. He says, when they come, consider them joy. Take a sense of joy knowing that they're conforming us day by day to the image of our Savior. They are refining our faith like gold ore in a furnace. They're causing us to rely on God who raises the dead. Without that joy, you'll never make it. When you lose your child, you won't be able to say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. When you get the cancer diagnosis, you won't be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. When your career falls out from under you and you lose everything, you will curse God to his face. If you don't have your eyes set on things that are eternal, you won't make it. You need endurance. If you'll turn one page to the left, maybe two, to Hebrews 12. So if you're in James 1, anywhere in James 1 to 5, and you just turn left like one or two pages to Hebrews 12, this is the last thing I want to show you this morning. I think it's probably the most important. This is Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 2. The, the writer has just given a laundry list of heroes of the faith from the Old Testament guys like Abraham and Moses and Noah and things like that, and how they endured under trials through faith. If this sermon's challenging you at all, go back to Hebrews 11 today and read through that. But here's Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood the night before he used to be crucified. That's a real medical condition, by the way. It's called hematohydrosis. It's where tiny blood vessels in your skin burst open because you're under such extreme emotional stress. And Within the next 24 hours, Jesus will be deserted by his 12 closest friends. He'll be betrayed by one for 30 pieces of silver. He'll be mocked publicly and put through a show trial that's a total sham. He will have the skin on his back ripped off by 40 lashings from the Romans and a crown of thorns smashed onto his skull. And last, he'll be led outside the city to Golgotha, where he'll be nailed to a Roman cross with spikes through his wrists and his ankles. I ask you this. According to Rome, Hebrews 12, what gave Jesus the strength to endure that trial of all trials? It's joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy of knowing that his death would free millions of people from slavery and bondage to sin and transform them into image bearers of Christ. It was the joy of knowing that his death and resurrection would bring more glory to God than any other act of human obedience ever, and that that, that glorious moment in salvation history would become a fountain of joy for God's people for thousands of years, for ages to ages. God, it was the joy of knowing that God's wrath, satisfied through the love of Christ, would bring an end to sin and usher in a new kind of kingdom and salvation for all. Joy is what held Christ on the cross. When he could have summoned a legion of angels to save him and destroy all of his enemies, joy is what held him there until his work was finished. And Hebrews 12, 1-2 says that as we run the race with endurance, it's the exact same idea as James is getting at, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, which is also what James is getting at. Jesus never asks us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. Later on, or earlier, Hebrews 2.10 says, Jesus was actually perfected through suffering. Not like a moral perfection. The author is very clear that Jesus was sinless. But that he became the perfect pioneer of our faith, our perfect captain, in a sense, through the suffering that he went through. And the same path lies before us. I don't know why God has chosen to work and accomplish his purposes through extreme trials like this and like the ones you and I face, or will face. But it might have something to do with this, that when all seems lost, when the day is at its darkest, and God comes in and redeems it and raises it from the dead, that he is able to display his power and his glory and his wisdom better than he ever could in any other way. So we won't always get to know God's specific purposes in every single trial. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we can look back with hindsight, and so I, I know what God was doing in that season of my life. I know why he sent me through cancer two years ago. I know why I had four miscarriages before I was able to conceive, but many times we don't. Many times we have no idea. We just won't be until the other side of glory that we find out what God was doing. But here's what we do know. Number one, we know that our suffering is not the wrath of God. If you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ and what he has done on the cross, taken away all your sin and the penalty that that deserves, God's condemnation no longer hangs over you. He may discipline you as a father disciplines his child. He may allow natural consequences of your sin to remain, but we can trust that he is not afflicting us from the heart. Number two, we know that no suffering is meaningless. We might not know what the meaning is, but James says, let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is working all things to the good of those who love him. You don't have to know what the purpose of your trial is to know that God is working it to your good. You got a long way to go. You need endurance. And James says the way to get the endurance you need to make it to the end of the race, to make it across the finish line, you're going to go through some trials. Trials are the means God uses to give us the endurance we need to make it to the end. And finally, we know, like Job, that your genuine joy in the midst of severe trials is a wondrous testimony to the truth of the gospel, the goodness of God, and the beauty of Christ. Think about this. When you this is very hard to say, when your five-year-old dies of leukemia, and you say with Job, through tears and groanings too deep for words, blessed be the name of the Lord. Your unbelieving family members, that unbelieving nurse in the hospital, they'll have no idea what to do with that. They'll say, who is this God that you can still bless his name? Right? When you get the cancer diagnosis, say the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, you're testifying that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Right? When your wife or your husband starts to lose their mind to the ravages of Alzheimer's, and you can still find the strength to show up here on Sunday and sing the songs we just sang and rejoice with the saints, you testify that Jesus is better even than marriage and and a sweet 50, 60 years of marriage to this man or woman. And so to end, I'm going to read some echoes of these sentiments we've been talking about this morning from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Habakkuk was a prophet in God's Old Testament people, Israel. He watched Uh, the Babylonians invade and, like, destroy everything. So he lived through intense trials, and he watched his whole civilization fade into shadow. And he ends his book, Habakkuk chapter 3, with these words. It would be good for you to memorize this and then to meditate on it for the next year or ten years until it seeps into your bones. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines... and I'm going to give you a moment to pray to God as well, whatever he may be stirring up in you. Maybe it's a trial that you went through and you never got answers. Maybe it's to pray for endurance, to encounter trials you're going through now or that you know are coming in the future. Maybe it's to go to God and say, I'm not in Christ and I want that joy. Give me faith, even the, like a mustard seed. So please pray with me and then I'm going to give you a moment and. When you're ready, the musicians will ask you to stand and sing with them. Father, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Help us to say with Job in the midst of trials, blessed be the name of the Lord. Help us not to doubt your goodness, or to be angry with you or charge you with wrong as Job did, uh, as Job did not. Guys, this is a very hard truth for us to understand. And without your Spirit working among us this morning, it will not seep in and grip us as it ought to. Pray that your Spirit would work through this preaching of the Word this morning, through James 1, 2-4, to convince us all that we actually can persevere through trials with joy, knowing that the testing of our faith will produce endurance, which we need to finish the race. Pray that you stir up the saints in prayer now as they take their own private concerns to you.